ladies and gents. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Pokolsky. Today is one of my favorite podcasts ever. I'm going to tell you guys why. Today's guest uh, is going to give you some really interesting insights, not only into performance, as he is, in my opinion, the greatest trainer on the planet, the greatest performance expert on the planet. He also happens to be my college roommate. Um, And so maybe you'll get some insights into younger Benny P and how I lived my life in university. Just kidding. You might not. But I have this amazing conversation with my great friend, Andy O'Brien, and he's been a guest on the podcast before. And you may have heard Andy's name if you're anywhere in the high performance space. So Andy trains everyone from the top Olympic athletes in the world to he was the head of strength and performance for the director of performance, I should say, with the Pittsburgh Penguins for a number of years when they won the Stanley Cup consecutively. He's recently signed on with a management firm to to be their director of performance. When I tell you this guy is the best trainer on the planet, um, again, I've met all the best trainers on the planet, but uh, as far as the people I've ever met, this guy is uh, in a league of his own. And there's no one that understands uh, both exercise, physiology, and optimization of performance like he does. And that's not blown smoke because he's my friend. It's just, I sit there with my mouth open most of the podcast and just listen to him speak. And I try to ask somewhat, you know, articulate questions, but for the most part, I just sit there and like, and it's kind of like wind it up, let him go. And I will apologize in advance for the audio quality. Andy and I are literally sitting in his living room uh, and it's not the greatest audio quality, but I promise you that the content is absolutely worth it. And Andy is someone who you're going to want to pay attention to. I think I've convinced him to start his own podcast. And the guy's just such an incredibly uh, brilliant human with so much value to provide the world and so much humility around his craft. Uh, he needs to spread this information because, again, there's no one that I understand that I know that puts it together the same way he does, right? Experts often exist in silos and, you know, an expert can be, I'm an expert in protein synthesis, or I'm an expert in human movement, but never ever met somebody who puts it all together and understands all the facets. And now he wouldn't tell you that, right? He's very humble and he, he would uh, definitely not want me to say this, but it's true. And uh, he's an incredible guy and he's not only an incredible man, he's an incredible friend, incredible leader, and someone that I aspire to be more like every day. He's uh, one of the greatest guys I've ever met. And uh, you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation with Andy O'Brien. Today's podcast is brought to you by optimize.me. They are back, ladies and gents. If you remember quite a while ago, maybe about a year ago this time, Optimize president and founder Brian Johnson joined me for one of the most highly regarded podcasts in muscle intelligence history, uh, which by the way, we've had, I think 10 million downloads a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. So um, Brian Johnson was one of the most highly downloaded podcasts that we've ever had. If you haven't listened to that one, I suggest you go back. But today's podcast is brought to you by his business. And here's why they are hooking you guys up. Optimize.me memberships are now free. Yes, it blows my mind because I've been a member of this site for Gosh, it must be 10 years now, certainly since 2008 or nine, I've been paying for Brian's stuff. So what Brian does is he synthesizes all of the best books on the planet. So any high performance books, any self-help books, he's creating what he calls philosopher's notes. Now that's not it. There's so much more. So you're going to get these 10 minute videos of all the best books in the world. And Brian does such an incredible job synthesizing 
Um, so one, you could check if you want to read the book. Two, you can see, you can, I, I often just often go there and, and get like the big points. He gives you what he calls the big ideas in the book. It's so incredibly valuable. But he's also added to the business now where they're giving away courses. They have these uh, optimized courses specific to very specific outcomes that you guys are trying to achieve. An example may be we're trying to improve our behavior change. We're trying to improve breathing. We're trying to improve some aspect of optimization that Brian has created these, uh, you know, plus one specific topic courses that are super useful. Here's what else for exclusive for the muscle intelligence audience. Brian is also hooking us up with a massive discount to his coaching program. So I went through the coaching program. It's actually a 10 month coaching program and it's incredible. He brings people on that he calls his luminaries, which are some of the best authors and experts you've ever come across. An example being Cal Newport. Um, God, he's got so many great, great guys that are, they're luminaries. Um, one that I love, Phil Stutz, which is Brian's personal coach on there, personally teaching you how to ultimately become a better coach or become a better version of yourself. You, I don't want to brag too much about this, but it's such a great offer. Guys, they're giving you a membership for free and the discount on the coaching program. So I paid, I think, $1,000. I think it was 1000 plus tax. It was 1000 plus change when I set up for this program exactly one year ago. And now they're, getting, they're hooking you up for only $300. So total, that's your investment, $300. And... You can bring a friend for free. So you guys can split it. So head over to optimize.me slash muscle. Do not miss this offer. It's not available forever. It's only going to be up till January. So if you guys are uh, someone who ultimately wants to live their greatest life, someone who wants to be better, this is one of the single greatest resources that I've used to become a better version of myself since probably 2007. That's about more rambling for me. Enjoy the podcast with myself and my great friend, Andy O'Brien. And again, I apologize if the audio isn't awesome. I promise the content is worth it. All right, we're talking about the highest level of human performance, accessing the highest level of human potential with Andy O'Brien. Second time. Second time or third time on the podcast? I think it's second, man. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we have so many conversations that all blurs together. And yeah. we were saying we should record all these podcasts, record these conversations. Let's do it. Um, so, Andy, as we just spoke about before we started rolling here, we were talking a little bit about you get guys who in your profession who are exceptional at what they're doing, and they're coming in, they're performing well on the ice, they're performing well in their sport, whatever that sport is, and they come to you and say, "Hey, make me better." I think maybe a good place to start is like. Talking about the value of a general level of, of preparatory, uh, you know, preparation basically for any sport, and how that implicates in someone's high level performance, and then getting even above. So then you get get somebody in, get, somebody comes in, no uh, preparation whatsoever. So we got to bring them up to a certain level of, of preparedness to maybe just make them more resilient to uh, their their stress or their sport. And then there's the next level of opportunity, or the next level of performance where. Someone's coming in, they're already kind of fit. Now we want to go to like being world class. So typically you're working with the guy at the higher level, but can we start with just chatting a little bit about, you know, somebody who comes into your world and has no experience in the gym, but they're already performing at a high level. What does that, what does that look like? Where do you start? Yeah, I think that it gets, it gets uh, easier as you come down to the more fundamental levels to, to gain results with some applied methodology from a training standpoint, right? So, um, 
you know, when you have a lot of area of opportunity, just based on the lack of exposure to different things, you can get some results really quickly. As you climb the ladder and you get progressively more, um, you develop a higher level of mastery of all these different fundamentals from a training standpoint or nutrition standpoint or whatever it is, and then your performance then gets much higher. Now it's a little bit harder to increase performance. So it gets a little bit more complicated and the conversation has to get a little deeper with the athlete to identify well, how, what now, you know, how do we really elevate in terms of what you're doing? So you have to be a little more specific. But at that broad level, it's like almost everything is, is beneficial. So you have an athlete that's just doing some basic range of motion work, some basic strength work. Um, they can get some really good results off of that. And you, you often see this with young developing athletes. They go and do a, a very, you know, fundamental oriented program. There's no real, um, magic tricks in there. You're just doing some things that are tried and tested and have been around and you can have these like huge increases in performance at a basic level. Um, I think that when you are approaching different things, different sports, you have to have an idea of what transfers. And so what are the specific physical qualities of the sport? And then what are the physical qualities that you want to try to enhance? So for example, if you're a goaltender, um, you know, doing sprints, for example, might not apply the same way it would as a forward or a defenseman in the NHL, for example, right? Because um, goaltenders are obviously in a small, confined space. So those are some of the questions you ask, even at the fundamental level, right? What are the demands of the position? What are the demands of the sport? How would a basketball player train differently than a football player? Even at the starting point, you're gonna answer some of those basic questions. Um, and then as it starts to get a little bit more fine-tuned and the athlete develops that higher sense of mastery, um, then you start to peel the layers down and it gets a little bit more complicated. So in that foundational level, what are some of the kind of principles you're looking at? So someone comes as a hockey player, they come in as a swimmer, they come in as a basketball player. Like you're breaking down the sport to its joint angles. Like what are, what are the you know the basic premises you're going to apply when, when, when developing a program for someone at that level? Yeah, well, I think there's physical systems and probably at the most broad level before it really gets sport specific. So a swimmer is a really good example. Let's say you have a swimmer that, um, now swimmers are in these prone positions, they're using you know their upper body and the lower body, so much different than a football player, for example, right? And the body composition requirements are quite different, right? Like you may not want a ton of mass in swimming, for example. So uh, whereas in football, you might need that. So, so there are a few questions to answer, but you might have a 15-year-old swimmer and a 15-year-old football player doing the exact same thing as long as you're touching on a variety of physical systems. So developing aerobic capacity might be very applicable for the swimmer, not applicable for the football player, but developing aerobic capacity might help the football player recover a little bit faster, stay a little bit more focused in their sessions. There's some benefit just from an overall health and fitness standpoint in terms of doing that kind of base level of conditioning. So I think you can take that approach across all physical systems. So obviously you can break it down in whatever way you want, but there's a cardiovascular component, there's a strength component, um, there's a movement component. So that component is gonna have some concept of getting into a variety of different types of athletic positions. Um, and then you're gonna have some ability to sustain output. So some ability where that movement component, that strength component and the cardiovascular component kind of come together and you're performing some relevant task and you're able to sustain that task at a certain intensity for a certain period of time. So that's kind of pretty general in training, right? A lot of training packages can kind of fit into that equation. And then I think that the questions that you start to answer as you get better and better at those things and you see like less areas of opportunity 
are, you know, what are the direct things that matter? What are the KPIs or what are the specific things that, that matter that I can focus my time and attention on? Um, and so that starts, that conversation, you know, may not even start until four or five years into an athlete's training uh, concept. And it's really interesting. There, there, in professional sports, you will see a variety of belief systems in terms of how specific and applied the training needs to be versus how general it needs to be. And I think one of the reasons for that is because there are athletes competing at a really high level that still haven't mastered some really basic fundamentals from a, from a, a training standpoint. And as a strength coach, if you're inheriting these types of individuals and you expose them to some of these basics and they see these huge improvements in their performance, um, that becomes your belief system. You know, you believe that, hey, it's not that complicated. You just need to focus on these smaller things. But as a strength coach, if you're inheriting a lot of athletes that have actually already accomplished a deep sense of mastery of some really off-ice fundamentals, and they've done really well, and their questions are a lot more specific, you might find yourself developing a methodology that's more specific and more finely tuned. You might find yourself trying to search for KPIs in sports and understand the differences for an athlete that's already laid a really good foundation. So I, I think that's probably how I would frame the whole thing. Start with basic physiologic systems and then try to peel back layers as you go up the ladder. What are some of the benefits that someone may experience from becoming more proficient at these things? So you see some athletes that you say, they come in, they're already world-class, or they're already great at what they do, and then you introduce this this introductory training program. What would they, what, yeah, what would they benefit from? Uh, it's a really good question, and we were talking about this earlier, and I've, I've had this conversation with some of my staff that, for me as a, as a strength and conditioning coach, the level of curiosity and the level of accountability that you have to have to what you're doing is what drives you to become better and, and forces you to keep learning on top of what you've already discovered in the years past. So if I see an athlete who's got a high level of performance in their sport, but they don't look good in terms of some of the things that I value from a training standpoint or preparation standpoint, there's two ways you can look at that. You could say, okay, well, they're good, but they could be so much better. Um, they're good, but what's making them good is a virtue of some natural ability, and we still have all this area of opportunity, and if I give them that, then they're really going to succeed. Or I can challenge my own assertions, and I can ask myself, well, if they're performing at this extreme high level, and they're not showing competency in these things that I think are relevant, maybe the things that I think are relevant actually aren't that relevant. So maybe athletes performing at a high level that have an absence of the qualities that I value is, is something that's going on. If that's a pattern, what can I learn from that? Maybe, maybe the things of value aren't that important. And usually you learn something when you dive into that. Sometimes when you dive in, it reinforces your understanding of things. And you say, okay, well, they're performing at a high level, but it's only in these particular situations in the game. In these situations of the game, even though their peak performance is really high, they're actually really weak in these aspects of the game. And so when you actually start to define performance differently, you see something there. And so you start realizing, okay, well, what I'm doing only relates to these parts of their performance, but it doesn't relate to those parts. So you start to, to now discover KPIs and you understand, okay, they're really successful in this capacity, but I could affect this part of their game, or I can affect sustainability, or I could affect durability, or I could affect the longevity on which they're able to do some things. So you might you know, understand this relates to peak performance, that relates to sustainability, this relates to this aspect of the game. The way we define performance is too broad. We have to break it down, categorize it, and that's how you discover KPIs. Have you ever seen a performance training program decrease somebody's performance? 
all the time. Yeah. yeah. See, I've done it. You know, I've done it to myself. I've done it where I have a certain belief that certain thing matters. Um, you know, I've, I've done that and the mistakes that I've made are usually when I try to um, look at the athlete purely outside of the context of their sport and just fix the things that I see, assuming that it's going to translate and not spend time looking at the athlete in their sport and try to identify what we're trying to change, you know, based on that. Uh, so, so yeah, I've, I've made those mistakes. I've seen it with a lot of athletes. I mean, most of the time for me, I'm a hard guy to track down for a lot of athletes. So, uh, I don't have like a big volume business. And so sometimes it's not the most convenient thing to kind of come to me or whatever. So usually somebody that does, like they've arrived at the conclusion that something's not working for them, right? They've had a, an injury, maybe they've done a certain system and they realize it's time to move on. They're looking for something a little bit different, or they have a lot of questions about what they need. Um, and so they're, they're not just looking for something generic. So it gives me, I'm grateful for that because it gives me an opportunity to actually have a, a deeper conversation with the athlete. And that's kind of how I've discovered the importance of, of looking at the individual and then looking at them in their performance environment. I got to think that that applies to business. So if you take a, let's say you have a business and, and whatever the industry is that you have your business in, and you go to a successful businessman without telling them a whole lot about what you're doing and you ask for a business plan, you know, it's going to, yeah, he could probably pull something out of a drawer and say, here's a generic business plan that tells you your marketing strategy, your employee strategy, um, you know, how you need to operate, what kind of money you need to spend, what your targets are. Like that generic strategy is only going to get you so far. Mm -hmm. And to really take that to the next level, they probably have to start asking a lot of questions about your business, your people, your personnel, try to understand your injuries or try to understand your industry, your competition. And so I think that every business is unique. There's not one business plan for every industry, right? And if that's the case, I think you have to look at an athlete the same. There are individual differences to the athlete and different things that they need to do to succeed that, that make it less generic. It's interesting, right? Because we talk about compensation as athletes often being the best compensators. And as coaches, we're looking for specificity of movement oftentimes, right? Yeah. And so, you know, almost taking away that, that compensation pattern seems like it's a touchy situation. Like, I don't want to, like, kind of take away their, their, their adaptive gift, but yet I still see some value in making this movement a little more specific or their ability to access this range of motion more stable. So how do you kind of tell that line? Man, that, that's so true, and it's such an important line to tell. Athletes are great compensators, and what makes a good athlete is the ability to get an outcome in spite of a limitation, right? So you have a limitation in your body, but you can still get to your destination because your body can find some kind of workaround, right? And the people that can't do that, they don't have the same amount of success. So it's natural to, to, for the best compensators to rise to the top. So you definitely see that a lot. And I think trying to undo compensation or control compensation has some value, uh, certainly from an injury prevention standpoint. But at the same time, you really want competency, you know, not too much control. You don't want to put too much rigidity around something because those are like highly evolved neurologic systems that allow that athlete to get to that compensation pattern, right? So, so you really want to try to take out some of the risk factors without necessarily putting too much control over something. We do this a lot, like a lot of the physiotherapy and rehabilitative applications that find their way into exercise prescription. Most of the time we slow it down and put too much control on it. And I think it undermines the, the neurologic way in which our bodies move. And a perfect example is I know athletes that can't do a front bridge on the ground but they could stabilize their trunk and their pelvis in these highly dynamic and volatile movements because those are two completely different systems. 
They might work really well with velocity from a stability standpoint, but they don't work really well with force. So when you slow something down, it doesn't work. When you speed it up, they do incredibly well stabilizing it, right? So sometimes our thought process is you have to slow something down and control it first, and then you move it up the progression. But I know many athletes that actually, they're fine up here, right? And they don't perform well down here. So I, I think the jury's still out for me in terms of like that, we simplify it in our head a little bit, that if you can do this, you can do that. And I think sometimes like you start with an athlete in a more dynamic, less controlled environment and actually train those systems in the dynamic way that they have to operate. If you're a good coach and you know how to keep somebody safe and you understand the anatomy well enough to be able to guide somebody in that environment, um, I think you can get a better result, you know, because you're working on it on that kind of level that is, is more consistent with what they eventually need to do. You said that the best athletes are the best compensators. If you have to define that at like a physiological or psychological level, like what's actually happening there? Yeah, really good question. I mean, I think this, these are all related to like subcortical neurologic systems. You know, we have these vestibular systems and, and aspects of our body that are designed to avoid pain and to achieve movement. And so whether we produce a rotation in a joint, whether we offload a specific joint, this is just our body communicating with our brain and essentially trying to find some ability to accomplish its task independent of a, a specific limitation at a muscle or a joint. And so, so I, I think that they're just athletes with really good motor learning capacity and movement skills are really, really good compensators. That's what I think it boils down to is the motor skill thing. Yeah. So if I wanted to quantify that as an athlete or as a coach and then like, Hey, let's, let's try to develop this so that you can be a better compensator. Is it just like, I need to have a really healthy adaptable nervous system. Is it something to do with, with genetic predispositions at the subcortical region? Yeah. What do you think that would be? Man, I, I love that. Above? I love that. Like, yeah, this, this to me is like a really important conversation in terms of like what kids do, for example, like exposing kids to things like gymnastics, throwing the ball, climbing the wall, you're training a specific type of system. So the systems that we think of when we think of training are cardiovascular systems and muscular systems, right? You don't necessarily think of neurologic systems because we don't understand them all that well, right? They're really complex. But hockey was an interesting sport for me because it's not a capacity-driven sport. It's not an athlete that has the, the best cardiovascular capacity. It's not a sport that the strongest athlete or the most powerful athlete or even the fastest athlete is going to dominate. It's if there's one thing though that hockey players have that might trump every other sport, it's probably their motor skills and their adaptability because the sport is so fast and there's so many different movement skills required in the sport that athletes that are highly adaptive and really good at picking up other sports, they typically do really well at hockey. And so, so I think you have to look at that as a thing in and of itself, that that is the quality, right? If if hockey players aren't great vertical jumpers and they don't have like crazy aerobic systems and they're not the most powerful athletes, they're like, what, what are they? And I think they would score really high if you took all the athletes in the world and just had them try to play other sports and see how fast they can master those sports. So I think we don't necessarily look at those motor skill systems as premium qualities, right? Because they're a little bit harder to measure and define. But I think we have to start measuring those and we have to build training applications that are specifically to enhance those particularly at the right time of, of a person's age. And there's big debates about this in, in um, specialization, early specialization, football, basketball, baseball, hockey, team sports. We see a lot of kids that are specializing. And on the strength and conditioning side and the human performance side, most people are against this because they believe in 
long-term athletic development models and the development of different physical qualities of later specialization. But on the flip side, there's not a great argument for that because you do see a lot of athletes who specialize that do extraordinarily well in their sport, right? And that's just a productivity thing. They're spending more time in their sport. They're accomplishing things at an earlier age. So I don't think we've done a really great job of presenting a scientific argument around that yet. And I think just sometimes the complaint is, yeah, you're a great hockey player, but you can't even dribble basketball. Have you read Range by David Epstein? Range is a, is a really good way yeah. of breaking it down. Yeah. yeah, Epstein breaks it down really well in Range. Yeah, so you've got like Tiger, who from the time he was three, yeah. played golf, and then you have um, Federer, yeah. who didn't actually start playing tennis until he was like 12 or 14 or something like that, right? Like everybody exactly. played, but not like... Didn't really like it. He played a bunch of other sports. It's more of a multi-sport like yeah. approach to actually getting there. Yeah, and yeah. You, and you have, like in in my opinion, one of the things that we value is as sort of uh, support people is we value all of these things. Somebody's ability to squat or lunge or throw a football or dribble a basketball or just do these kind of uh, multi-purpose like variable physical tasks, but. But we have to be do a better job of relating why those tasks matter in the sport because that's what the athlete wants. So if you have a young basketball phenom who wants to play basketball, they could care less whether they could use a hula hoop or do a jumping jack. It doesn't really matter to them, right? It might matter to their strength coach, but it probably doesn't matter to the athlete. So what we have to do is explain to them why doing a jumping jack or being able to use a hula hoop probably is going to relate somehow. We have to be more specific in that way. Like just saying it's going to help with injury prevention or it's going to help your performance is just a starting point. I think we have to do a better job connecting the two. And I think understanding these motor systems probably helps us get there a little faster. Very, very cool, man. So you're working with some of the top guys in the world and, and your thought process has obviously evolved since we've been friends. I'm curious what the evolution has looked like maybe over the last three years and uh, how maybe some of the things you say that you look back three to five years, you're like, yeah, I did that wrong. Yeah, man, it's this constant humility, you know, yeah. that, that comes into it. I think if you take an approach in anything that you do where you want to do the best that you can and you're willing to be honest with yourself, you know, you're, you're always refining and changing. And I think in that process, too, it also enhances your true confidence in what you do know and what, what does hold up. Uh, because if you, can, if you can challenge your assertions and force yourself to produce some level of objectivity around what you're doing, you know, usually that, that makes you realize a few things, you know, that, that you need to keep learning. And then it also helps to reinforce things that you've done pretty well. So, so I would say, like, for me, the, the biggest thing that I've found is, is that our understanding of anatomy and physiology, I think, is simplified by the way that we teach it, right? We learn about muscles as individual units, really, right? And I think when you kind of work in more of an applied concept, you start to see the interrelationship of different things. And you start to see the ecosystem of the human body as a really complex matrix. And I think for me, you know, that's probably I've learned some really simple applications and then realized that it's really difficult. So let's take posture, for example. You line somebody up from a side view and you see they have a forward head carriage and they have a protracted shoulder position. All right, you know, maybe, maybe that's bad, right? And so, so somebody decides they want to fix that. So some of the basic things are like, keep your shoulders back, you know, or we'll just say, here's like a three times 10, you know, exercise against the wall to like really change that position. So, so how many times I'd be curious for the people who've actually done that and then done some pre and post measurement to see if they've actually created some kind of change, right? Really hard to create a lot of change with a small amount of work in that area, right? Cause you're fighting against, you're fighting against all these like 
you know, subconscious processes that are going on the other 23 and a half hours of the day, yeah. right? And there's so many things influencing these things, like forward head carriage posture is influenced by your vestibular system. Um, it's influenced by length tension systems. There's there's adrenal and neurologic processes that are energy related and some of the energy metabolism things that are affecting posture. So there's all these different influences on this, this type of thing. So the solution probably has to be multifactorial. And I've done it in the past where I've tried to look at that from a muscular standpoint. You know, these muscles are shortened, these muscles are lengthened, this is weak, this is overactivated, so I'm gonna create some mobility strategy and try to you know, work on some small muscle groups. And I've done that where sometimes it's successful, sometimes it does nothing. And then I've done it where we change the nutrition of the athlete and the posture cleans up like that because we've got more posterior tone because we've done something that's improved the gut or proved some kind of energy deficit and then that energy deficit leads to some subconscious process that improves the outcome. So, so I've just sort of gained a, an appreciation for how hard it actually is and you know, I, think, I think that's just made me more curious and, and it's made me try to be a little bit broader with my, with my curiosity when I do see a problem because I know the fix might not be the same for every person in every case. Man, I love that because what that goes in my brain is we, we tend to separate like the physical and the chemical. Yeah. And people see muscles like, yeah, that thing contracts and moves, but they don't see it as a, as a chemical entity as well. As something that's producing hormones, it's, it's responding to the chemical environment. So Absolutely. if the tone in the muscle isn't correct, it's not just because of uh, your lack of movement or your lack of training. It's also something chemical happening in there as well. And there's also probably other levels, right, that exist. Oh, no question, man. You said it so well. Like that, it's, it's humbling when you have an athlete that says, okay, you got a guy with weak adductors and weak glutes and... You know, we're going to go into that program, strengthening the adductors, glutes. We're going to do some isolation, some range of motion, some integrative stuff. There's tons of strategies and overlap with the current methodologies around those things. Um, and you might build it into their performance and do all the things you need to do. And you know, for whatever reason, you know that that athlete has some kind of like sleep apnea issue. They have something else that's going on, which is extremely common in sports, right? Especially when you're dealing with physicality and trauma and you're pushing that overtraining boundary all the time and this autoimmune stuff going on with these athletes and all of that stuff is like affecting these things. So I've seen athletes that look good Monday, look good Tuesday, look good Thursday, Wednesday come in, you're dealing with a totally different athlete. Their muscles are completely stiff. Their range of motion is completely changed in that day. And anyone who's done daily measures with athletes over time, whether you're looking at force plate measures, range of motion measures, strength measures, um, you see these like nuances all the time, right? It's not just like, here's my power. And then like one day it went up just a little bit. You see the powers up here one day, it's down here another day, right? You realize there's some complexities and probably the thing that keeps me coming back to is the interdependency of all these systems, right? There's a, there's a chemical influence somewhere that's affecting the muscle. And we see this in hockey all the time where you have, it's a quad dominant sport. And you know a thing or two about quad dominance, but you get this, you get this overactive muscle that affects the tone and the hamstrings and, and the glute, right? And what very often happens is you'll train the hamstring, the glute complex, and you'll overcome that, that quad dominance. And then you have an athlete who goes and does three or four hard days in the ice and all the work that you've done is like instantly gone, right? So, so it just, it shows the neurologic influence of the muscle, right? There's capacity there in the muscle, but there's on and off switches that are affecting these things all the time. And, you know, that's how muscles work in these antagonistic ratios. So, yeah, I, I, I love the way you frame it, actually. It was really good. Sweet. So you've been working with some athletes for a long time. And so these are people who are the best in the world at what they do. 
what are you working on now? Like, what, what's, what are the things that keep coming up consistently? Or, or is there a new level of, of aspiration, like we're trying to get even better at this? Like, where does that thought process come from? Yeah, I think, I think that um, the thought process uh, is, is always trying to identify KPIs, and that, that's become a little bit of a g general term. Like, I think the word KPI gets thrown around a lot, but it's really just trying to identify what, what matters. For one athlete, if we can keep him or her very stable, and moving really well in very specific things, then that might be the best KPI for that athlete. You know, they may have their best success. And so it's individual, KPIs are individual. Highly individual. So I think it's peeling back the KPIs and separating for each person in each case. And even for one in person at different times. Like I'm a big believer in that. I think that that's huge. And, yeah. and then of course the high, the high performance, that ability to be more consistent and continuously raise the bar. It just starts with the mentality, and you know I'm I'm fortunate to work with a handful of athletes where I don't have to spend a lot of time on the mentality. It's already there, so we're just working the, the technical side of it. But I, I know that that's to me that's really what separates the best of the best is is they just have a keen interest in making themselves better, and there's no detail too small uh, for them. They they want to know everything, and if there's one small opportunity, they'll go to any length to exhaust that opportunity. I interrupt this podcast to bring you a special announcement from yours truly, me. Ladies and gents, we have an incredible training coming up this Monday. I'm going to teach you everything that I know about body transformation. Come prepared with a notepad and a pen and an open mind. And we're going to teach you how to get in the best shape of your life. You can head over to muscleintelligence.com slash training and join the list now. And again, there's a very limited number of seats. So do not miss your chance. This is a one-time only training. Head over there right now. As soon as the podcast is done, of course, listen to the podcast. As soon as it's done, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash training. That's T-R-A-I-N-I-N-G, training. And join the webinar. Sign up to be on the list and we will send you a notification when we go live. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. Funny man, because when you say KPIs, people ask how I train now. And I'm like, well, I have these very particular KPIs that I have to maintain. As long as I'm hitting those, like the rest of it's just kind of fun. It's like kind of playing. Yeah. So it's like you got to deadlift this much, you got to squat this much, you got to mention that. Th so those are the KPIs for me to know that I'm going to be at my physical best or my strength best, and then I want to be able to do this much cardio and have this heart rate. And so we've got literally this number of, of KPIs across the board. And if I'm hitting these, at least I know I'm not getting worse. Like I have to make sure I maintain that. So as a guy that you're speaking to, like as at top of the, at the top of the world, they're already the best in the world. So they they know if I hit these things, I've identified them as things that that keep me at that level, and if I can at least maintain that, I know I have the physical and, and psychological prerequisites to keep me there. And then as you yeah. say, you're looking at the nuance in between that maybe some something in between can maybe push me up. Those are one of the minutia aspects can push me up a little higher. Always, always, yeah. I think. I think the KPIs can be really basic, you know, so they can, um, I, I really look at uh, team sports as like decathlons, you know, there's certain qualities that you need, but the more well-rounded you are and the more you can overcome weaknesses and deficits in certain areas, the better. So I think you can have kind of like you were saying, a broad spectrum of these are my lifts, these are my cardiovascular numbers, these are my mobility numbers. Um, I want to be strong across the board in these things. And then I think you can start to be more defined in terms of the more specific your task is so 
if you're a, an NHL player and, and you want to score more goals, you might have to start asking the question, like, where are the ways I'm going to get more goals? Is it off the rush? Is it my game down low where I'm going to create more chances? Is it in shooting situations? Is it in hanging on to more pucks? And then when you start to get into those conversations, now you, you have to watch and try to understand, okay, why am I not hanging on to more pucks? Is it physical? Is it tactical? Is, there, is it related to something that our team is doing or an opportunity that I'm not getting? So you have to kind of find out where the opportunities are. And for some players, it's like I'm getting all these chances off the rush, but I'm not getting chances down low. Or, you know, I'm, I'm getting pucks in certain situations, but I'm not converting those into chances. And then you dive deeper into the physical qualities that are like very particular for that thing, right? And then if you can find a deficit and say, okay, well, there are a few physical qualities related to hanging on pucks down low that I don't have, maybe I can build that, right? And then that's going to enhance that specific type of quality. But it starts with that conversation because if that's not the thing that's going to lead to more opportunities in your game, then don't build that. That doesn't become your KPI, right? So your KPI is kind of defined in what's going on. I learned when you start having those conversations, it's complex. Some, it's a team, right? So sometimes what you're doing as a player depends on what other players are doing on your team, depends on what the, the other team is doing. Um, you might get off to a, a certain start in a game and then the way you're being utilized is different than in other situations where you're getting off to a different start. And so, so that, that KPI conversation is like, it's an ongoing thing. And I think you learn a lot about what physical qualities match up with, with what tools. Or one of the greatest assets as an athlete or anyone ultimately is, is the ability to quickly pick up new motor skills and new motor programming. Um, I'd like to talk about how you would intentionally build that into your training once you're one of the athletes training. Because I know you have some very unique approaches to training, but I wonder if you had a specific uh, thought process on what that would entail. Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I think of it as task mastery like really from that standpoint. So you take any kind of movement task, um, whether you're throwing a met ball or whether you're snatching a dumbbell and stepping up onto a box, or it could be like a movement series where you're gonna just try to accomplish something and there's a variety of movements involved with that. And then I'm just gonna like eyeball the movement and see what I see, right? And usually what you see is you see an athlete preferring certain muscle groups, certain muscle group complex are gonna take over, um, certain joint complexes are gonna take over. And then depending on the, the, the movement requirements and the, the force requirements of the task, the body is gonna attack it in a certain way. The body's really intelligent in that way. So if the force requirements are really high across a specific type of task and you have force within a certain range, you know, you're gonna choose that range that has the force to be able to do that. So if you're weak in a particular type of range, you're gonna be able to eliminate that. So it's very good from a diagnostic standpoint when you have these, these concepts. And so you can, you can clean up movement with coaching. You can identify certain force deficits in certain positions. And then the flow of the movement and the ability to blend the task fluidly uh, versus doing it in a choppy and over control way is gonna tell you a little bit about which aspects of these motor systems are involved, whether it's highly cortically dominated or whether you're using more of these subcortical systems that work with timing and tempo and coordination of multi-planar actions. So some athletes are a little bit more cortical in the way that they move, so they're a little bit more rigid and a little more controlled, and some are a little bit more fluid and smooth. I always call that an athlete thinking the movement or an athlete feeling the movement. And so there's a little bit of a dance there in terms of like evolving that process. So the neurologic process, neuromuscular process, which muscles are involved at which phases and which times, what are the interrelationships of those muscles and whether that's efficient and optimal for the movement, and then the biomechanical side of it. So the biomechanical side is 
is you know which which ranges of motion are being produced and are those are those ideal so I, I kind of break it down into those three categories with my analysis I love it so you spoke about cortical versus subcortical cortical being very conscious subcortical being being flow or, or feeling um, and I think earlier you kind of alluded to the fact that it doesn't necessarily flow from cortical to subcortical they're kind of separate skills is that, is that yeah no question like I, I really think that you know, and, and I'm not a neuroscientist, but my understanding of the neuroscience aspect of the movement and what I see on a day-to-day -day basis is that those two things tend to work antagonistically a lot of times with an athlete. Mm -hmm. You know, they tend totally. to, uh, and one of the first cues for me as an athlete, if they, if they look at the floor and they fix their gaze on something, most of the time I know that they're in a, like a cortically dominated or cortically controlled movement. When their head is up and they have to process more things at a vestibular level and they're taking in more stimuli from their eyes, um, typically that means that they're solving that problem a little bit more globally from a neurologic standpoint. Um, same thing from a movement standpoint. The more complex it becomes uh, and the more those subcortical systems like the cerebellum are involved in the movement. Man, so, so an example for me, if I'm doing something, let's say I'm doing a deadlift and I'll do you know, a plate, two plates, three plates, four plates, and I'm, because it's not, it's a sub-maximal load, I'm very cerebral, I'm very intentional about what's moving it and how it's moving and, and, and what's contracting. And let's say I go to a weight that's like, I kind of have to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm you know, all on board. Like the, yeah. this is like, I'm not a max weight, but like this is gonna be effort. It's not gonna be easy. It's almost like I flip into a new gear. So it's, I think it's almost like, I'm, I feel like I'm turning off the cortical areas and moving yeah. into the subcortical. Cause it, like I, my output, when I can get to that place, my output almost like skyrockets. So let's say I can do eight, eight to 10 reps with four plates, and then I go five plates, and I'm expecting to get six, I'll get 15. Wow. Because it's like, I'm I don't know if it's I'm turning off the, the conscious processing, yeah. I mean, I'm just kind of going into that flow state, but there's it's, it's something interesting that happens where it feels like it, it's more fluid, and it feels like I'm accessing a higher level of, of uh, performance. Yeah. Is that what's happening there? I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, probably what's happening there is there's a sense of, um, you know, you're mastering the movement component of it. So when, when you're able to, to perform something in a relatively automated way, like I don't think that there's some uh, myelination or motor learning that's happening that fast, no. right? But when you first do something that is a little bit foreign, you know, you're trying to control the movement and you're trying to explore the movement. You have your conscious awareness of the movement is much higher from a neurologic perspective. It's not even new. It's like if, I, right. if I'm doing any exercise, I'm, yeah. too, I'm trying to make it as hard as I possibly can. Right. So I'm conscious right. of like I'm contracting everything at every inch. And when I let that go and I'm not super, super conscious of making it hard, yeah. like I, I do exponentially more. Yeah, that equates to me as like something that in, in team sports that I call easy speed. Hmm. So it's this idea that athletes are trying to associate effort and speed, you know, but the people that really know speed, they understand that it's, it's effortless yeah. in nature, right? And, and one of the reasons is because there's an energy cost, but there's also an efficiency cost, Attention. you know? So, so that ability to move things efficiently and, um, you know, the harmony and the symphony between these muscle systems and tendon systems and the timing of the output of that system is is critical to what you're doing so if the timing is there if the integration is there which now we're talking about more complexity from a movement standpoint versus just the the overall kind of output now it starts to become a little bit more effortless right and so i think i think that's that's why sometimes with athletes we i don't know if it's a thing that we do in north america where we think if we clench our teeth and we grind then it'll be better right you just work harder but a lot of times yeah the the, the more efficient it is the easier it is the more fluid it is um, 
the less energy cost and, and the more you can sustain it. Yeah, that brings me to this conversation you and I often have is like the, uh, call it genetic or call it the state differences of athlete to athlete of their nervous system. So you know, you're, you're a relatively sympathetic person, you tend to turn on very quickly. I tend to be more parasympathetic. It takes me a long, long time to get going. I know if I start a workout, if I don't start a workout with something really heavy and hard, the rest of the workout's kind of shit. I don't have that like drive. Whereas you, you can just walk up the road and go squat max weight. Yeah. And that's just a genetic difference at the autonomic nervous system level, right? Or at the brain level. No question. I'll talk about that a little bit. And where that kind of segues is like how you control those athletes' mental state during a workout. Whereas, you know, for you, you know, so it's almost like you have to like keep yourself. You tell me, I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah, pretty good like question. Like two of the athletes I work uh, probably closest with, Sidney Crosby and Heath McKinnon, are at the far ends of those spectrums. Like Sid, um, on a, he's as far on the parasympathetic side as you're going to get. Nate's probably as far on the sympathetic side as you're going to get. Um, Sid in particular, like I've seen our, our SSD values, like HRV values in the 400s of him before, you know, and probably you know averages in the, in the high 200s, you know, low low 300s. So. So really, really far on that end of the spectrum, but very similar to you, uh, I can think of probably about half a dozen other high parasympathetic athletes that I have. You kind of have to start with some level of like intensity to be able to get the, the, the overall hormonal and neurologic response that you need. Yeah. And then tend to do a little better with more sets. So it takes like three or four sets and like you get better from set to set, sometimes a little bit longer in the repetition so that you can like you get the heart rate spike at rep 10, whereas on the high sympathetic side, you're getting that heart rate spike in like rep one, right? It comes like really, really fast. And very often, you know, two sets is kind of that sweet spot. You don't actually need to keep pushing something. You kind of start high and then like start to flatten off in terms of the overall productivity versus on the parasympathetic side where the productivity just gets better and better the more you layer it, right? And I think what's been fascinating to me in, in a sport like hockey, and I think, I think there could be some similarities in football, basketball, where, where you see like these far ends of the genetic spectrum in the same sport. And I think one of the things that's great about a parasympathetic athlete is you have the ability to maintain low heart rates with high levels of physical exertion. So what that allows you to do is have a greater access to cognition when you're in motion, right? So you're hitting, you're skating, you're chasing people down, you're getting chased, playing this like high speed sport, but yet you're maintaining this really, really low heart rate so you can think. And so your ability to process and think and take in information is much higher versus a sympathetic athlete that maybe doesn't do it more cerebrally, but they just have this dominance from physical capacity, their speed, their ability to maintain speed and maintain intensity is a little bit higher. So for me personally, like you were saying, I've always been the type that I can be coaching somebody for an hour or be on the floor for two hours and then jump in and do a demo. And I can look and feel as if I just warmed up for an hour. You know, I'm ready to hit that demo in a really, really fresh way. And, you know, most of my parasympathetic friends could never do that, right? It's going to take them probably 15 minutes to go and warm up and get to that point where they could be at their best. Um, but on the sympathetic side, you have a tougher time sustaining it. Uh, and you have a tougher time recovering from it, right? Because those systems that help recover, obviously, are not necessarily the ones that, that align with activation. How trainable is it? Um, to train the nervous system? Yeah. One way or another. So, you know, say, for example, I'm relatively parasympathetic. I think that I turn myself into a relatively sympathetic person during training, during bodybuilding. But then, you you know, the next phase in that question is, does it take away from your game? So if I'm training a sympathetic athlete to slow his heart rate down during a game, does that take away from his, his high-level performance? Or does it add to it because now he's got access to his consciousness? That's a great question uh, because I think the way we look at heart rate 
we have a tendency to look at one number, right, with HRV. So we have a tendency to look at either raw RMSSD or some logarithmic RMSSD. But when you're looking at heart rate and you look at things like high frequency HRV, low frequency HRV, and you kind of plot it out in a little bit of a matrix and you start looking at deeper components, you realize that like, that like it's not just parasympathetic and sympathetic, right? You can increase both. So in any athlete, if you're increasing both sympathetic and parasympathetic um, power in your nervous system, there's tremendous benefit from that. One doesn't always pull from the other. Now they, they do tend to work antagonistically in, in many ways, but they can also work synergistically in many ways. And so I think that's really what defines a good athlete that has this capacity for both. So a highly parasympathetically dominant athlete might be over-responsive in their parasympathetic system. So if I give you two days off, you might be flat as a pancake because we haven't primed that, that, that sympathetic system. So for you, we might need activation through that period or we might need to focus on getting that system turned back on. For a sympathetic athlete, their parasympathetic system might totally shut down during that time. So they might come in and have no problem getting turned back on, but they might not be regenerated or they might not have recovered enough after those, those two days. Or they might be doing extremely well with that, whereas you don't do well with time off and then a sympathetic athlete does because now they're fully regenerated, right? So I think the way you respond is different, but both athletes really want to get both systems as proficient as you possibly can. So it's not a choice between one or two. It's a choice between which one you're supporting at different times based on how the athlete's responding to what you're giving them. How much are you using this to drive your decision-making with respect to what to do? Personally, I love HRV to drive decision-making because it gives you a really easy snapshot at individual differences. And these are predominating systems that affect so many other things. So you know that HRV is going to affect muscle tone you know it's going to affect hormone systems. You know it's going to affect um, some, some gut stuff that's going on because we know that the gut is a parasympathetically dominated machine. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's just very easy to predict what fluctuations in HRV are going to do to the body. So I think it's a really low-hanging fruit for me. Pretty cool. What are you studying right now? What are you excited about? Um, I think the thing I'm, I'm most interested in right now from a, like a, a research perspective is is fascia and looking at fascial systems. And it's probably fascinating to me because I've like it's come up throughout my whole career. I've been learning about fascial slings and muscle systems and how they work. I think fascia is particularly complex. I think it's highly neurologic in nature. And I've realized um, there's quite a bit of power in understanding how um, a fascial sling has these ultra dynamics where one part of the sling really affects the other part of the sling. So let's say you have an issue going on with your right hip. How's that being influenced by the upper trunk on the, on the left side and how we can do different things to the upper trunk on the left side to influence the right hip and finding out ways to do those together and synergistically so that you're shortening one and lengthening the other for lack of a better term but you're creating tension on one part of the sling and the other part of the sling at the same time and using exercise applications in this way. So I think, I think like I've heard this over and over and over and I understand it conceptually, but the applied side of it is pretty under, is underdeveloped in my opinion. And I think our understanding of it has forced us to look at it a little bit more statically. So you see things in like Evoya's Aldoa program and a variety of the influences that I've had from people like Steve Deshavi and Bill Knowles and some of the bright thinkers and pioneers in the rehab space that I've worked with. 
Um, I, I think they have really good approaches that, that value these fascial systems and value the global context of muscle function. But what I'm really interested in is the neurologic influence of it. So, so what causes a muscle to adapt to certain types of stimuli? So we're providing a stimulus to this fascial sling. How can we modify that stimulus in a way so that we can modify the adaptive response accordingly? So trying to find different ways of creating inputs that are neurologic in nature, but are respecting these fascial systems. So you might use sprinting as a really good way to rehab a, a hip injury, you know, if it's a muscle injury around the hip, because of the timing and the nature and the dynamic influence on that sling, it might just be the thing that needs to change in order to overcome a chronic injury if the injury is at a muscle level, it's not at a joint level. So I think looking at things more dynamically and looking at things more globally is kind of where I'm at with What's your favorite thing about what you do? Um, I could probably sit around and talk about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it with an athlete all day long. And I do that for fun, you know. So the opportunity to do that as a career, you know, just never feels like work for me. Very cool, man. Um, what's the last book you read? Um, or one you'd recommend? Yeah, good question. Um, I'd probably say there's a, there's a book that I recommend um, called The Body Movable by David Gorman. I don't know if you've seen it here, but um, I got that recommended to me by Mark Lindsay years ago. Hmm. Um, and I, I, I've just always had it and I've gone back to it. And when I start to go into these systems, um, it, it takes me back because I think sometimes, uh, I think looking at anatomy and some of the people that explored anatomy in, in the early levels, I'm really fascinated about the logic of the human body. So why is the body designed that way? For what purpose, right? And um, I think that book does a pretty good job of saying, of breaking down. It's beautifully handwritten with drawings and uh, so there's an artistic component of it, but it sort of approaches things in a way that, that explains here's what the body is doing and here, but here's, here's the function that's associated with that design. So I think it's kind of Mary's function of design. And the other book that did that for me on a neurologic level was a book called The, uh, the Neuroscience of Human Movement by Charles Leonard. So um, just, a, just a way of breaking down some, some real simple um, terms that, that make it easier to understand some complex systems. So anything that can take something complex and make it logical makes it easier for you to reconstruct it and make sense of it. I'm smiling because the last time you were on the podcast... I asked you the same question, and you said something completely different. <laughs> I was expecting two books like that, and last yeah. time you said Real Love, which has oh, cool. since been yeah. my most recommended book, for sure. That's amazing. Um, but that was, a, that was a more appropriate answer. Cool. Yeah. That's cool, man. Dude, I That's love cool. talking to you, man. That was awesome. Thank you so yeah. much. You got it, brother. Yeah. All right, man. Okay. All right, ladies and gents, that's a wrap. So hopefully you stuck with us all the way to the end, and if you're listening to me now, you did. And the audio, as I said, wasn't the best, but the quality of the content, I'm sure you know, is amazing. And unfortunately, at this time, you can't learn more from Andy yet, but I promise I'm on his coattail, pushing him to get this information out first in the form of a podcast, eventually it will be courses, eventually it will be books. Andy is just so busy coaching athletes. He literally coaches the top 20, or actually way more than that, hockey players in the world, uh, some Olympic athletes, people you would know, I'm not going to name drop. Um, but he is literally the guy. And I hope you guys enjoyed that. If you did enjoy it, uh, you can definitely follow Andy on Instagram. And I'm sure there's some other places. If you Google his name, you'll find some great information about him. Today's podcast is brought to you by optimize.me slash muscle. 
get hooked up with an incredible offer. So as I said, I think I was paying at least $30, 20 or $30 a month, probably for the last five years, um, just to have access to the stuff. And even that was an incredible deal uh, because you're getting so many books. I think they've got about 600 or more, maybe it's a thousand now, um, Philosopher's Notes. And if you guys don't know Philosopher's Notes, go over to YouTube, check it out. Just, just search Philosopher's Notes on YouTube and you'll find these five to seven minute videos on a book and it gives you the five big ideas and there's so much value. And it allows you to one, decide if you wanna watch it again or sort of decide if you wanna read the book or decide if you, hey, I got all I wanted of that book. I'm not really interested in going deeper. That's enough for me. But either way, there's so much value in the optimize.me slash muscle offer free, getting hooked up and 70% off. It's more than that if you guys want to become one of their coaches. And again, it's it's absolutely worth it. It's 10 months of coaching um, and all these incredible luminaries. It's such an incredible gift. And, and Brian is an incredible human who's doing a lot to create a community over there around people who are just ultimately thriving. And if you guys are aspiring to be part of a great community of people who are leaders in their community who have great hearts, and ultimately want to do great things in this world, you can head over there, head over to optimize.me slash muscle and get hooked up. Thanks guys. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.